So value is a really good example, right? Because what the academic research says is value is important in determining the relative return of a stock. That's, that's point number one. And if you look at the last 10 years, value stocks have really underperformed. So in other words, if you look at stocks, a stock's value exposure tells you whether it's had a good return or a bad return. Now, historically, value has beaten growth. And what people complain about <laughs> is that the return to value has been negative. And in all, the, in all the academic studies, generally, over the long run, it's been positive, right? So when you say value doesn't work, I would actually, I, in my head, I try to draw this distinction in, it doesn't work in, in the sense that it's irrelevant or it doesn't work in that the return premium is not there. And I think it's the latter. So value has been really useful in understanding the context of the contextual nature of returns, but the returns being negative. And I don't think it's because everybody's exploiting it. I think it's because of the environment that we're in. And I think factor returns do ebb and flow depending on the market environment, you know, just like dividend yield ebbs and flows based on the market environment. And I think you need to take that into account when you build these portfolios. Welcome to Excess Returns, where we focus on what works over the long term in the markets. Join us as we talk about the strategies and tactics that can help you become a better long-term investor. Justin Carboneau and Jack Forehand are principals at Validia Capital Management. The opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the opinions of Validia Capital. No information on this podcast should be construed as investment advice. Securities discussed in the podcast may be holdings of clients of Validia Capital. Hi guys, this is Justin. In this episode of Excess Returns, Jack and I talk with Harinda Silva, Portfolio Manager and Team Lead for the Analytic Investors Team at Wells Fargo Asset Management. Harin has deep and tenured experience in factor investing, and we talk to him about a wide array of factor-related topics, including the use of factor momentum, tilting into one factor over another throughout an economic cycle, the use of earnings dispersion and revisions, and some of the more underutilized but effective factors that may not get that much attention. The conversation with Harin made us realize how robust and varied factor-based strategies can actually be. Thanks for listening. Please enjoy this discussion with Wells Fargo's Harin Da Silva. Hi, Harin. Thank you for joining us today. Hi, Justin. Nice to be here. Thanks for having me. We're going to spend most of the time today talking about quantitative investing and factors. But before we do, I wanted to ask you about your need, and that is your need for speed in your life. In doing some prep for this interview, I uncovered that you, um, I know at least you were at one point racing vintage uh, cars semi-professionally. And you also do something I think really unique with motorcycles, which many of them go fast. Um, all around the world. So I thought to start, we'll kind of start on the softer side of things. Maybe just, you know, tell us what you're doing with race cars and what you're doing with motorcycles. I think both are really cool. Yeah, two very different interests. You know, I'm a little bit at a gear at heart. I think in terms of the race cars, um, I've had a passion for a long time for the technology underlying Formula One. So I've, over the years, collected... uh, old Formula One cars ranging from ones in the late 50s to as recent as the late 80s. And what I really enjoy doing is studying how these cars have evolved over time. Uh, because you know, initially people focused on lightness, then they focused on bigger engines, then they focused on aerodynamics. And it's really a, a thrill to be able to drive the cars and see how the technology and how each how they tried to solve the problem of going faster and how that affected the way the car drives. So it's really come from that perspective. So very much an engineering perspective, very much a 
trying to figure out how we got here perspective. And the motorcycles? The motorcycle is very different. You know, I love traveling. Uh, and I find traveling by motorcycle allows me to really experience where I'm at. So as I've traveled through Europe, traveled through Asia, traveled, you know, all the different continents on a motorcycle, I feel like I actually get to smell the different countries, uh, enjoy the, the humidity or the rain that's associated with every country. And it's very different than traveling by car or traveling by plane or traveling by train. A bus. I think traveling by motorcycle really exposes you to the environments and it's really given me a much better perspective on the different parts of the world. You know, whether it's traveling in Africa or traveling, you know, in Norway towards in the in the north in the Arctic Circle. So very different places and a very different experience. I'm sure. I um I, I read the article, I think it was from where your uh, son went to college, but it was talking about how um, you guys would both race together. Um, he was, I think he started, you got him into go-karts um, when he was, you know, maybe really young. And then he sort of graduated up and, you know, you guys did a lot of races together. And I thought that was really, it just seems like that probably for him and you was a really good sort of father and son experience. Yeah, it's been a wonderful experience. I mean, last weekend, he and I were lucky enough to get invited to drive uh, Formula One cars at Goodwood in the UK. And, you know, obviously, he's at the front of the grid. I'm at the back of the grid <laughs> <laughs> or the middle of the grid. Uh, but it was a wonderful experience. You know, I finished, I think, 16 out of 26, and he finished second. And actually, to get to see that on the track, and get to drive, you know, a vintage car around a racetrack, a vintage race car in a race around a racetrack at one of the you know, most popular events in the world. I'm one of the, I think I'm one of the luckiest guys in the world from that perspective. Yeah, amazing. And, and that kind of keeps you in shape, too. I mean, those cars are aggressive. I, I've done a, like electric go-karts around here that are, you know, pretty, pretty fast. And it's just, you know, you're, you're tightened up and your muscles are tight. At least I was when I was driving because I was kind of getting thrown all over the place. But it kind of keeps you fit, too keeps you healthy. Yeah, it really gives me a lot of motivation to stay in shape, especially so I can keep up with the younger guys doing it. Um, on, uh, so to, to kind of get into investing here, um, on Masters in Business, you shared the story with uh, Barry Ritholtz on how you got into, I guess, factor or quantitative investing. And it sort of reminded me of the path that Jim O'Shaughnessy took as well, because in his first book, Invest Like the Best, he was basically studying successful managers and trying to sort of codify or quantify them. But I just thought it would be, it would be helpful maybe to hear your origin story on how you first got into factor investing earlier in your career. Yeah, that was a, you know, it was a really interesting experience because I was working um, with a large warehouse looking to hire managers for their program, for their program where they, you know, gave money, to each of these individual managers. So I would visit all these managers and you'd visit value managers, you'd visit managers who are focused on growth or managers who are focused on income yield, for example. And what I realized was when I was looking at their performance, the performance was really an, a function of the underlying strategy and how the strategy was rewarded at the time. So at the time I was doing this dividend yield had had a huge return premium associated with it. In other words, high dividend yield stocks had done really well. And I realized all the managers who were rising to the top of the pile in terms of performance had, had a dividend yield focus. 
and they all did it for different reasons. Some use a, use a dividend discount model. Others had this philosophy that dividends was an indicator of the future property bill of the firm. So everybody had a different reason for doing it, but they were all loading up on the same factor. And that's when I realized, wow, this is, you know, the factor exposure is driving the return and you can do it for different reasons, but it's really important to control the factor exposure in your portfolio. Before we talk about uh, factor investing in detail, I, I want to sort of take a step back and get the lay of the land first. And, you know, one of the criticisms, you know, those of us that are factor investors have seen is that the results in the academic research of factors maybe have been a little bit different than what we've seen in the real world. And, you know, once, once some of these factors have been discovered and people particularly tend to pay attention to value, but the results in the real world haven't been as good as what we saw in the academic research. And I'm, I'm wondering if you could comment on that and maybe talk about what you see as the future for factor investing now that some of these factors are widely known. Yeah, so I would draw a distinction, Jack, here between the the return premium and whether the factor is not important. So value is a really good example, right? Because what the academic research says is value is important in determining the relative return of a stock. That's that's point number one. And if you look at the last 10 years, value stocks have really underperformed. So in other words, if you look at stocks, a stock's value exposure tells you whether it's had a good return or a bad return. Now, historically, value has beaten growth. And what people complain about <laughs> is that the return to value has been negative. And in all, the, in all the academic studies, generally, over the long run, it's been positive, right? So when you say value doesn't work, I would actually, I, in my head, I tried to draw this distinction in it doesn't work in, in the sense that it's irrelevant or it doesn't work in that the return premium is not there. And I think it's the latter. So value has been really useful in understanding the context of the contextual nature of returns, but the returns being negative. And I don't think it's because everybody's exploiting it. I think it's because of the environment that we're in. And I think factor returns do ebb and flow depending on the market environment, you know, just like dividend deal ebbs and flows based on the market environment. And I think you need to take that into account when you build these portfolios. Are you optimistic about value going forward? I mean, do you think that premium will return? Do you think this is just an exa another example of a long period where value hasn't worked? Or do you think there's something fundamentally wrong here where people need to be questioning value? I wouldn't question value. I think it's going to work in the long run. And I think to me, what's really important is that you have exposure to this factor in your portfolio, but you have you manage the exposure so that if it's not returning positive, it doesn't decimate your portfolio. That makes sense. Um, so yeah, so talking about multi-factors, I wanted to move on to low volatility because you know, if, if in looking at your work for the, and reviewing it for this podcast, I think there's probably no factor you've focused on more in your career maybe than low volatility. So I'm just wondering if you could talk about what drew you to the factor um, of low volatility. Yeah, so I, you know, I was an engineer originally, and I was uh, the first time I stumbled on low volatility low volatility factor was in a finance class. I was at the University of Rochester and Mike Jensen was teaching this class and he pointed out this paper he had written uh, along with Fisher Black, it was Black, Jensen and Scholes, but they found that the security market line was really flat. And I, I remember, you know, this was back in um, 1982. I looked at this and said, you know, you can actually make money off this idea. And then when I asked Mike about it, he said, well, you know, we only had a short time period and I actually think it's upward slowing. And as we get more data, it's going to get better. So I kept following this anomaly. And then I was working on my dissertation in the, in the nineties 
And this paper came out by uh, Farmer and French and everybody focused on the paper because it said value worked. And what I got out of that paper was, hey, look at that beta doesn't work. In other words, high beta stocks have the same return as low beta stocks. And therefore, you can build a portfolio that exploits that anomaly. So that's when I really, really got interested in it. And that's when I started you know, building portfolios and being a big advocate for it, because I realized it was a little more subtle than saying just by value or just by small cap. Uh, and it was a way of delivering what I thought was the holy grail, which was the equity risk premium with much less risk. Why do you think low volatility works? You know, it, it's a challenging uh, factor for factor investors to explain because on one hand, you know, you want a risk-based ex explanation. You want to say, I'm getting excess return by taking more risk. And on the other, you want to use maybe a behavioral explanation and say, there's some reason investors would fundamentally misprice it. And both of those seem tough with low volatility. So why do you think low volatility works over time? Yeah, I actually have a slightly different uh, explanation. I actually think the average return relationship between beta and return is flat, right? But, over, but if the return is flat, the high beta stocks have higher volatility. So then the geometric, geometric compounded return is going to be less. And to me, that is the, is the root of the anomaly. And I think the source of the anomaly is that when you look at stocks, you don't actually take the beta of the stock into account when you value the stock. So, you know, take a company, take a company which we're really familiar with, which has evolved over time. So like Amazon, right? When Amazon first started, went public, it was a really low beta stock. I mean, it was basically a con consumer staples bookseller retailer with a lot of idiosyncratic risk. It didn't move much with the market. Now, over time, as it become more and more technology oriented, it's become more of a tech stock. The beta has actually gone up to its, where it's more than one. But, as, but I guarantee you, read any report on Amazon, follow its process over time. Nobody ever mentions how the beta of the stock has changed over time and how the valuation should therefore change as a result of that. So I think people ignore it, which is why I think that's consistent with the idea that the relationship between return and beta is flat. Nobody really cares about beta when they assess a stock. You see this flat relationship, and that gives you the opportunity to build a portfolio that has a higher geometric return. That's very interesting. Um, you know, one of the misconceptions or one of the things people believe about low volatility is they believe, you know, when I'm investing in low volatility, I'm going to tend to get, you know, similar stocks over time. I'm going to tend to get utilities or consumer staples or, you know, things like that. And I'm wondering if you could just talk about sort of what the low volatility basket looks like and, and how it changes maybe over time. Yeah, there's a very dramatic change over time. You know, so I've obviously been spending too much time looking at this, <laughs> you know. So, I mean, if you look at, you know, Take something like energy, right? So before the Arab oil crisis in 1972, energy was almost like utility stock. So they had very low beta. And then in 1972, we had the first OPEC embargo and everybody realized this is actually a very risky group of stocks. The beta of these stocks went up dramatically, right? And then over time, they came down again because the U.S. started producing shale oil and energy became much more abundant. You remember when oil prices, you know, fell dramatically along with that, the beta of these companies actually came down. And then more recently, they've gone up again. 
so energy has gone from low beta to high beta to low beta again. You know, same with banks. You remember back when Alan Greenspan said, you know, these banks have eliminated risk in their portfolios right before the financial crisis. You know, banks were low beta. They were all under one. And ever since the financial crisis, banks are more than one. So they do change as the business cycle changes and the business models change. And I think one other, I draw a lot of comfort from that because it becomes clear that it's not a systematic sector mispricing or an industry mispricing. It's something that's a lot more deeper than that because it basically this covariance issue that gets mispriced. Yeah, it's funny. If you told someone today that energy would be in a low volatility basket, they would they would think you're crazy. But you're right. I mean, if you look at it through time, you know, it, it, there have been periods where it has been. Right. Yeah. Energy, banks. I mean, all the, you know, and even, I mean, technology didn't exist, right? 40 years ago, what we call, what we call tech now, that's high beta. So, uh, and you remember back, you know, in 30 years ago, the only thing in communications was AT&T. And that was a utility, so it was really low beta. Now anything in communications is really high beta because it's all you know cell phones and so on. So it's very different how these things have evolved over time. You talked before about how you use a multi-factor approach to investing, and I wonder if we could dig a little bit more into that, and if, if you could maybe talk about how you think about building a multi-factor portfolio. I mean, in terms of the factors that go into it, and and how you think about combining them to build an overall portfolio. Yeah. So that what for me, what's most important is that the aggregate portfolio has the right exposures. So when I think about, you know, so think about a simple two-factor portfolio, right? Where you have value and quality. One way to do that is find quality stocks and then find value stocks and then combine the two in one portfolio. I don't think that's the right way to do it. I think the right way to do it is to use a, a, an optimization routine that says, build me a portfolio that has average quality above average and average value above average for, the, for that portfolio. And what that does is allows you to combine different securities in, in a way that's a lot more efficient than building individual sub portfolios. So for, for me, that's a really, really important distinction because what's important is the characteristics of the portfolio, not each individual stock. And are you a believer in using all the major factors, value, momentum, quality, low volatility? I mean, do you think they all have a place in a multi-factor portfolio? I do actually think that the, the, the texture is a lot more important than just each individual factor. I think having, when you say value, momentum, you know, value, value can be priced to sales, value can be priced to earnings, value can be priced to trailing earnings. So there's all these different factors. So you need to factor all those into account in the building the portfolio. And, that's one of the challenges actually of, of factor investing, because if you look at right now, trailing earnings is not very informative, right? Because trailing earnings has the pandemic. So right now forward earnings has a lot more importance and price to sales has a lot more importance. So I think factoring, when you, when you factor these different factors together and into one category, it's really important to realize that their importance will actually change depending on where you are in the cycle. Yeah, you alluded to this this ability to change your exposure to factors. You know, one of the things you'll see with, with many multi-factor investors is they'll just sort of set there, you know, I've got my percentage to quality, my percentage to value, and those are sort of keep that consistent over time. 
But you've talked about how you think momentum actually can be used to maybe change the exposure to factors and, and invest more in the factors that are working well. And I'm just wondering if you could talk a little bit about you know, why you believe that and how that gets implemented in a portfolio. Yeah, so this goes back to my, um, my kind of uh, introduction to um, quant investing where I was looking at individual managers. And what I noticed that the ma managers of a certain type managers who focused on dividend yield, managers who focused on earnings growth, for example, they all tended to rise together and then they stayed at the top for a while, usually one to three years before they got out of favor. And it's not that the managers got, got stupid or lost their edge, it's just that the factor they were loading out went out of favor. And that's where I noticed that factors, you know, just like fashion or music, they go in and out of favor. And often it's really important to identify which factors are in favor and then emphasize that in the portfolio. So I find that factors that have been in favor for about a year have the most importance, two years less important, and after about three years, factor momentum tends to die away. And Jack, when we first started doing this, um, I would say, you know, 25 years ago, you know, we, we would get a raised eyebrow when I went to talk to consultants about it, saying, are you talking about timing factors? And I would say, no, it's not about timing factors. It's about recognizing that the factor risk premium changes over time. But more recently, there have been more and more academic papers that have talked about this, and they've really documented this whole idea of one-year factor momentum. And, you know, it's been really rewarding to see that. And, and do you do it at the metric level as opposed to the factor level? So in other words, if it's not value has momentum, it's price to sales has momentum. Do you do it at that much of a granular level? We do. Yeah, I think it's really important to do it as a, at a granular level. So for example, you know, from a quality standpoint, everybody thinks of operating margin, but there's other factors like ROE, which have gotten really important recently. And you have to do it at that granular level to actually get the best use out of factor momentum. Another approach a lot of people tend to use to try to time factors is this idea of valuation. So, you know, a lot of value investors are out there right now saying, you know, value is, and me included, by the way, our values in the second percentile all time in terms of its valuation relative to growth. I'm wondering, do you think there's any value in that approach or do you, do you think a momentum approach is, is far superior to that? No, I don't think it's superior. So I think that that, what I call the value spread approach is really useful for forecasting the value premium. But it stops there. You can't take the value spread and apply it to momentum. You can't apply it to quality. The value spread is really useful for forecasting value. And I think the, uh, there's a paper that I think in the mid-90s that looked at that in the U.S. and globally. The problem you have is that like any horizon-based signal, the power of the signal is quite weak. So the R square is like 5%. So you got to be very patient for it to work. But generally... When the value spread is large, there is a much larger expectation that's proved out to be correct about the future return. I don't know if you agree with this, but you know maybe coupling that with momentum is, is, would be a useful approach. So in other words, don't just invest in it because the value spread is large, but wait until you start to see momentum and then maybe add exposure to value. I don't, I don't know. What do you think about that type of approach? That's exactly what we do, right? So in our, in our, in our process, what we do is we say there's a long run return to value, but the the recent return to value has to be positive before you start increasing your exposure to it. So I don't think you ever want to have negative value exposure, but if the return to value has been positive for the last six months, you should probably have larger than average exposure. 
if the return to value has been negative for the last six months, you should have less than average exposure. But I think dynamically adjusting your exposure is something that's really important to do rather than just staying constant to it. So is this this is this the same idea as having different factor exposures at different points in the economic cycle? Are these two things the same? Is that how you would accomplish that by using this factor momentum? Or is there, or do you think about it differently? Like, you know, I know, I think the data would, would show that, you know, coming out of recessions or bear markets, you know, value tends to, tends to do best. So, you know, but no, you would, you would want to wait until that, you know, positive momentum signal emerges on value. And then you would maybe tilt a little bit more towards value. No, I actually think you need to do both, Justin, uh, because because momentum works, but taking the economic cycle into account also works, right? So just to just to pick pick a a recent example, when we started coming out of the um, pandemic related crisis, you could that was a, a very strong risk on environment and usually in that environment value works so it was if you waited for value to start working you would have missed the majority of the pop so i think you need to do both those are two complementary signals and if they're both pointing in the same direction you should probably have even larger value exposure or even rather quality exposure depending on the factor you're looking at but i think that's part of the science of investing and, and part of the science of quantitative investing is realize that you can have multiple signals one of them is the economic environment. One is maybe the value spread. The other one is the momentum of the factors you're investing. And as an investor, you need to combine all of these together. And that's how you're going to get the best forecast. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. The more good inputs you have, you know, hopefully the better output you have. Absolutely. One of the challenges, and again, going back to the pandemic, you know, that we saw with maybe trying to use fundamentals was the short-term results, you know, were nothing... They weren't going to be an accurate measure of the long-term picture of many of these companies, and so and I, th and I think you 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 uh, hit on it earlier with you know kind of using different metrics maybe from a uh, value standpoint. You know, you switch to price to sales, or um, I forget what the other metric you said. But can you just I think maybe talk to you know how do you address this when you have this short-term hit and it makes it so the fundamentals maybe are just out of whack. Um, how do you address this in a quantitative process? Yeah, so in a quantitative process, the, the challenge is when you have these inflection points, you need to realize that the historical data may actually have a break at that point, right? And there's been a lot of research that has looked as, at analyst forecasts in this type of environment. And what you see is that analysts at inflection points actually have way more insight than just using historical data. So if you look at what happened during the credit crisis, that first year after the credit crisis, analysts had a tremendous amount of insight into the relative performance of individual companies. Uh, you saw the same thing happen with the pandemic uh, last year. So if you looked at analyst forecasts and you avoided companies where the analysts were either not revising their forecasts or revising them downward, you actually had really good returns. So that was an additional signal we use in all our portfolios, which is recognize that, look, trading data is actually quite useless right now. So you actually need something forward looking and look at companies where analysts are actually revising their earnings upwards. And that needs to have a higher weight 
at these inflection points. You know, it also kind of reminds me of energy in, in late 2015, where you had the price of oil go from like whatever it was, $100 a barrel down to 25 or something. And, you know, like if you were using your standard valuation metrics, you know, those energy stocks look super cheap if you're using like trailing earnings. But um, we know they weren't, you know, um, even though they may have kind of done better. I mean, they were so cheap. You may have done OK in 2016, but that's another example of where the past data wouldn't have been anywhere near what the, the current stuff uh, looks like. Yeah. And, you know, so what I what I kind of always have to kind of balance in my head is the reason I rely on data so much is people tend to extrapolate too far in the future or be too optimistic. Right. So you want to anchor stuff in data. But at the same time, you got to realize if the last year is not representative, you need to throw that away or at least discount that. And to me, looking at analysts and actually using that as an anchor is really important. Now, analysts aren't always right. They're, a lot of times they're too optimistic. But when the world changes, they're usually the first to pick up on it. And they pick up, pick on it, pick up on it way faster than a quant model. Speaking of world changing, one of the things that you've talked about too is this idea that stocks, a lot of stocks at least, are being kind of put into two different groups in the market, this work from home group and the reopening or maybe more economically sensitive cyclical group. And that maybe there's, that's, that's some sort of factor or driver of, of returns. You know, do, you, do you think that that's a, a, something that could be factored in and sort of built into a quantitative model? Um, if these trends that have been put in place, if they you know, possibly continue? I do. I think that's a really important factor. And I would, I would liken it to, um, you know, back in 2000, you remember there was this uh, arrival of the internet factor, right? So you had, for example, brokerage firms that did business over the internet and brokerage firms that did not. And you had booksellers that were over the internet and those who did not. So it was the ability to actually do business in a different way. And I think the work from home, stay at home factor can be quantified the same way. And there are companies that have built business models that are resilient to whether people stay at home or not. And, and there are other companies that don't. And I think this is going to be a really important factor in, in valuation and in risk modeling going forward. So what we've done is actually figure out a way to quantify by estimating the beta of each company with respect to this factor. And we're actually trying to manage that exposure in our portfolios because we can't predict whether we're going to be in a stay-at-home world or a back-to-work environment, but we can make sure that we manage that exposure in our portfolios. And I think that's something that's really important to do, and it's going to become more important probably in the next two or three years because we've seen this be I mean, I personally experienced this change in behavior amongst all my coworkers where a lot of them want to stay at home uh, and they're actually willing to adjust their compensation accordingly. And I think the ability of companies to navigate this is going to be really important. So it's really important to manage this as an investor, as a risk in your portfolio. I think that's very interesting. Um, yeah, it's something we're going to have to all be keeping our eye on. Um, kind of switching gears a little bit, I wanted to ask you about um, building uh, quantitative strategies using dispersion of earnings estimates. And w one, I'm just, um, if you could sort of explain what dispersion of earnings estimates actually is, what it means. And then I guess two, have you found that factor helpful in terms of being able to generate alpha? We have found it to be really helpful. So what we think about as dispersion is if you 
look at a group of analysts who are following a stock and you look at the level of disagreement amongst them, that's essentially the dispersion, right? And I think in a world where we have Reg FD, where all of us have equal access, if you get all of us in a room and there is a lot of disagreement about the future earnings of a company one year out, what does that tell you about the company? It tells you that the earnings numbers aren't very transparent, that there is a lot of uncertainty about the business model, that even reasonable people as they get together can't agree on what the forecast earnings one year out looks like. You know? So I mean, a large cap company, there shouldn't be much disagreement. But so when there is a lot of disagreement or disagreement is increasing, that tends to be a really bad thing for the company. That says that the future returns are actually going to be lower because it either highlights some accounting issues, it highlights some consistency of business issues, or something else going on in the company. So being short that factor, being underweight that factor, is really, really important when you're building a portfolio. So it's a factor that doesn't get um, a lot of press coverage, but just like, you know, price to sales, it's a factor that it is actually really important. It doesn't fall into a neat camp. You know, it's not value, it's not gro growth. It's actually kind of financial quality in a way. Um, but it is a factor that I think more people should look at and follow because especially when it's changing for a particular company, if it's increasing, that means something really bad is going on with the company. Yeah, so it's, it's maybe a little bit more about, you know, the companies you want to avoid, maybe a little bit more of a risk mitigation sort of factor than it is necessarily alpha seeking, but it can help the overall portfolio. It sort of reminds me, we run a strategy based on um, a professor named Partha Mohanram. He wrote a paper and he uh, came up with a strategy called the G-score. But anyways, this consistency of profitability or consistency of um, uh, investing in the business, th things like that are rewarded in this model. And it's, it's very unique because to your point, you don't see, I mean, this is dispersion of earnings, but what this, the Mohanran model would do is more reward companies that have, you know, a lower standard deviation in their earnings as an input. Um, anyways, it just made me thought, thought of that right. with what you were talking about. Yeah, no, that's actually, so we use that measure too. So if you have a, if a company has high standard deviation in earnings, then the changes in earnings tend not to be that important because it may just be transitory. Right. So, so when you so for example, if you look at two companies, and they both have a penny revision in earnings, if one of them has a high standard deviation, the market tends to ignore the high standard deviation one because you kind of go, hey, that happens all the time. But if a company has very consistent earnings like Microsoft and the earnings are being revised upwards, then you go, wow, that's actually a change in their business. So it's a very earnings volatility is actually something that's really important and it's neglected a lot of times when, by, when people build portfolios. Have you found any other valuable data um, in like earnings estimate revision type of strategies or metrics or maybe companies that are beating earnings? Obviously, companies that are beating earnings by a lot, to your point, if they you know weren't expected to, they're, they're probably going to be rewarded, but have... Have you done any research on like earning estimate revisions factors? Well, yeah, we, it's, <laughs> I mean, that, that's a, uh, it's a, it's a wonderful trove of, of, of new information. And part of it is who's doing the revisions. So there are some analysts who are better than others. So keeping track of which analysts 
uh, is actually quite important. Uh, the other thing that's important is that when you're looking at earnings estimate revisions, it's really important to time weight them because some analyst forecasts out there, they don't change much at all. And the others change very frequently. So you need the more recent ones need to get a bigger weight. So there's a lot of subtleties in, in, in how you use um, earnings revisions data. And I think, you know, when people kind of say, yeah, I look at predicted earnings or I look at estimate revisions, they kind of miss some of the subtleties. And, and what's, what's really happened in my lifetime of quant investing is that 20 years ago, the subtleties didn't matter. And now they're all that matters because doing, taking the raw average of earnings estimates doesn't give you much. But if you weight the earnings estimate changes by the by giving more weight to the more important analysts, and you weight it by giving it more weight to the analysts who revise more recently, then you actually have a, a little bit more informative signal. Picking up on the idea of estimate revisions, you know that that's an interesting factor to me because it's not one that I've seen widely used by other quants. And I'm wondering if you have any other things that you think are interesting. Any other factors you use that you don't your average quant might not use? Yeah, I mean, there's a, there's. Uh, so the other thing, the other signal we use um, that is probably not widely used in quant investing is insider purchases. Um, and what you find is uh, insider sales aren't that useful because insiders are always selling. Uh, insider purchases are actually interesting because insiders are almost always overinvested in their old stuff, but if they're going out and buying it, that's usually informative about good news coming up at a company. Um, we've also found that uh, the disappearance of insider activity tends to be bad news on a, for a company. Because if you think about what the sequence here, right? Suppose you as a group of insiders know that there's bad news coming out on a company. You're not going to buy, but you're not going to sell either because you're going to have the SEC all over you. So what tends to happen is as insiders think there's bad news coming out of a company, the volume of, of their transactions tends to reduce. So that's an example of a factor that you know we've used for a long time. It's not commonly used, but incrementally it does add value to a portfolio. Yeah, that's really interesting. Um, I want to shift gears and ask you about ESG really quick because ESG has always been a challenge for me because I guess I'm a glutton for punishment in some ways, but I always feel like if <laughs> I, I'm going to get an excess return from a factor, I should be, you know, I should suffer some pain because of that. There should be some reason why people don't want to own the stocks. And ESG seems the opposite of that. It seems like I'm owning these great companies that are doing good for the world and I'm going to get a premium for doing that. And so I'm just wondering if you could maybe talk about ESG and how you think about using it in a portfolio. Yeah. So I'm in the same camp as you, Jack, is I, I believe that if somebody is doing something bad, there should be a premium, right? So there should be a climate risk premium. There should be a sin stock risk premium. There should be all those things. So I think those, I think there is a climate risk premium. I think if you're a bad carbon emitter, you are going to have, you're going to get a, people are going to ask for additional return to invest in you, right? So I think that's a fact. I think where ESG is useful is from a risk mitigation perspective, because companies that had have bad governance, and I'm focusing on the G more than anything else, their returns 
tend to have a lot of surprises in them. So if you look at companies that have had um, big corporate events in terms of either having to restate their earnings, um, having, you know, going bankrupt, they've been companies which have historically had a really bad governance structure. So if you look at some of the really big disasters like WorldCom or Enron, just as an example, you've had companies that have had really poor governance and that usually leads to bad management and bad poor decisions later on in the company. So I think that is really important from a risk management perspective. So that's, that's what, how we use ESG because what we found is statistically, we can relate poor ESG scores to how fat the tails are of a company's returns. So poor companies with poor ESG scores tend to have returns that are in the fatter tails. So from a risk management standpoint, those are companies, if you're gonna take an active position in them, fine, but take slightly smaller positions because you should not be surprised when something really bad happens to that. And that's, that's interesting because it picks up on something you've talked about before in this, which is a lot of people think about factors as sort of this way to find positive things about companies, but you know, they can be just as important on the other side, which is, you know, screening out the bad companies. And, you know, a lot of times I think investors maybe miss that part of it is, you know, a risk reduction technique or just screening out bad companies in general. Absolutely. I mean, that's, you know, part of outperforming an index is avoiding the bad ones, right? Or even more importantly, knowing how to size your bets to the right factors. So if you're buying a stock that's cheap, which is a common thing, you should be careful about sizing the position if the company has really bad governance, because it may just get cheaper or going to bankruptcy. Before we shift away from factor investing, I just had one more question, and it's probably a selfish question because it's something I struggle with myself. But this this idea of when a factor stops working. So, you know, people will identify price to book right now as a factor that hasn't worked in a very long period of time. But on, on the flip side, it has, you know, whatever it is, 80 plus years of history that shows it did work for a long period of time. And so I'm wondering how you think about that. How do you, how do you think about the decision of, all right, this thing has worked for a long period of time. Things may have changed. They may have not changed. How do I think about whether I incorporate that in my portfolio or not? So what I look at personally is, does the factor still work as a statistical factor in describing whether stocks outperform or underperform? And if you look at price to book as a factor, you know, it's still widely used in every risk model. So if you look at Barra's risk model, if you use an Axioma's risk model, price to book is still used as a factor and it hasn't diminished in importance over the last five years. So to me, the factor hasn't stopped working. It's just stopped. The return premium has gone away, which are two different things. But if the factor truly stops working, then I would say you should stop using it. Right. And to me, not working means there's no volatility associated with the factor. It doesn't, it's not useful in telling you whether a stock underperforms or outperforms. So, you know, so if you look at, um, if you look at Europe as a region before the EU, country factors were really important. And then they stopped being important for a really long time. So when you try to look at the stock return in, in Europe, knowing which country a stock was domiciled in didn't really matter, right? You could just ignore the country completely. All you had to know, know was that it was in Europe. So to me, the factors just went away until last year when the pandemic hit and the country's response were all country specific. They were not EU specific. And Sunday countries started mattering again. So, 
you know, it's kind of a long-winded answer to your question, but I think factors do go in and out of favor. But I think you have to realize there's, did it go out of favor in terms of return or, or volatility? And price to book to me hasn't gone away in terms of volatility. It's still really important. But in terms of return, the return's been a bit negative, which is obviously a disappointment for people who have positive exposure to it. But it doesn't mean it's irrelevant. How do you think about um, the idea of incorporating alternative data into your process? Like the example of the reopening um, versus stay at home trade kind of got me thinking like, you know, maybe you could, you could use something like, you know, machine learning or natural language processing to comb uh, transcripts of conference calls and try to identify companies that are, you know, maybe moving more towards like the stay at, uh, stay at home. It, it was just an example that you know, got me thinking that maybe you could use something like that to mine and uncover those companies that are maybe shifting more towards the stay at home and maybe seeing some benefits from that. But are you considering or using alternative data in your process? Yeah, we do use uh, natural language processing in different ways. So we'll actually use it to um, process the news and all the companies that we follow. So because we, we invest globally, uh, it's really hard to keep track of what's going on with certain companies in China, with certain companies in Hong Kong, for example. So we'd actually use a natural uh, language processing engine to read the news continually on every stock. And what we found is that spikes in news are actually bad for the stock. So we'll use it as a way to flag companies uh, because you know the nemesis of a factor investor like us is if there's something going on with the stock which makes the factor profile of the stock irrelevant, right? Those are stocks we need to avoid because that's saying what's going on with the stock is now idiosyncratic and not factor-driven. So what we use alternative data like natural language processing for is things of that nature. And it's the same thing as, you know, you can read a company's 10K uh, not read as in you know old style read, but read as in use it to read for a certain disclosure language, and use that to process companies which mention certain keywords you know repeatedly and to identify if there's a change. So we do use that data a lot, and I think that's one of the benefits of some of this new technology because it allows us to correct what I see as the biggest deficiency. In factor investing, which is we buy a stock because it has a factor profile, but there may be other things going on with the stock which swamp the factor profile. Well, yeah, I was just going to say the only just the one stock you want to avoid when the news sort of spikes up is GameStop. <laughs> You're right. <laughs> That's the one where you say, you know what? OK, there is something with this. This thing is, you know, the Google search trend is through the roof. Maybe we don't want to buy it, but we don't want to maybe short it either. Um, so, and that kind of leads me to my, I've just two more questions for you. I mean, you've been great with your time. Um, and I think you actually do uh, sort of build some, you know, short positions into some of these strategies. Um, so how do you, and I think you do it quantitatively, um, but you can kind of tell, tell us, um, you know, how, how do you, what quantitative methods do you use to build these short portfolios and how do you manage the risk around those? Yeah, so we use the same technique to build the short portfolio, portfolios as we do to build the long portfolio. So to us, you know, being long a factor, it's the same as being short a factor, right? I mean, if you're, if you're long earnings yield, you're short PE. It's, one's the inverse of the other. 
So that's from a factor standpoint, we don't treat it any differently. We are very different in how we treat stock positions from our individual stock perspective, because you know the, the, the point I made earlier about identifying stocks which are not factor driven is really, really important with respect to short positions, right? Because you can, short positions are very different than long positions because long positions, if you're wrong, it's self-correcting, right? You have a 2% position in a stock overweight and if you are wrong in it, it shrinks to 1%. I mean, it's bad news for you, it's bad news for your clients, but it's self-correcting. Short positions are the reverse. If you're wrong, the exposure is getting larger and larger. So the first thing to do is manage the short book on an active basis. So we're really disciplined about maintaining, having maximum position size limits and maintaining that. The second thing is keeping track of news activity on the stocks. Um, so if there's high news activity or if the implied volatility on the options is spiking, we'll actually avoid the stock completely. So if you have any reason to think that the stack stock is not factor driven, we'll stay away from it. So look at news activity, look at the implied volatility, look at active utilization on the stock, you know, which is uh, short interest divided by shares outstanding. All those three things will give you a sense of how safe it is to short the stock. Because you know, at, at some level, Justin, we're not shorting the stock, right? We're shorting the factor. So we, if, if, if we don't like a stock, we'll just find another one just like it. And for me, that's the philosophy that's allowed us to survive, you know, in the 20 years we've been, 25 years we've been shorting stocks, because if there's even the slightest risk of it, go away from that. Yeah, makes, makes, makes sense. Um, uh, just in closing here, um, we'd like to ask all of our guests this question, and that is based on your experience in the markets, if you can impart one piece of wisdom or teach one lesson to your average investor, um, what would that be? I would say it's to know where the return is coming from. I'm a big believer in investing in multiple sources of return, you know, whether it's factor return, equity risk premium, the vol risk premium. But I think when you look at your portfolio, when I think of my portfolio, the one I'm relying on for my retirement, I want to know that the return is coming from systematic sources. It's not totally skill-based. Anytime you're relying on skill to outperform, I think that's a, that's a tough bogey. And if you look at successful investors from Warren Buffett on downwards, they've had a lot of systematic trends that help them, whether it's value, whether it's leverage, whether it's quality. And I think knowing the, that you have these systematic risk premium driving your investment is really, really important. That's great. Thank you. Well, thank you very much for spending so much time with us today. If people want to learn more about what you're doing at Wells Fargo, research you're working on, um, is there a place they can go to learn more? Yeah, the Wells Fargo Asset Management website is a wonderful place to go. Great. Well, thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you. Good luck on the track. Thanks, Justin. Thanks, Jack. Thanks for all the questions. Hi guys, this is Justin again. Thanks so much for tuning into this episode of Excess Returns. You can follow Jack on Twitter at, at @practicalquant and follow me on Twitter at, at JJ Carboneau. If you found this discussion interesting and valuable, please subscribe in either iTunes or on YouTube or leave a review or a comment. We appreciate it.